All right. Well, this morning um, we are continuing, actually wrapping up our series in Acts. Since we're kicking off our new series, Summer in the Miners, um, you're gonna you're gonna like that next series. By the way, I'm just telling you, you you're gonna enjoy tonight t- today as we finish up the series. But next week is gonna be so fun, kicking off Summer in the Miners. But uh, um, and we have some really fun things in store. I think we're actually planning a church day to the ballpark on a Sunday. Uh, so in the evening, going to the ballpark and enjoying an M's game. But uh, um, today we're wrapping up this series through the book of Acts. I have so deeply enjoyed this series. And the guests that we've had in it. Um, Tim Enlow was powerful this last, couple, this last weekend we had him. Um, for one, his humor is just engaging. And uh, I love his quick wit, but, but then at the same time, there's like this doctrine that's just getting this solid doctrine that he's teaching. And then on top of it, the move of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it was just, if you, if you missed it, man, you missed it. It was awesome. Um, but God is not done. God is at work, and I believe that he's going to continue working. And so today as we wrap up this series, um, we are not wrapping up the move of the Holy Spirit. Um, Acts 19 is where we're going to be, so if you have your Bibles, open them up with me to Acts 19, or you can get in the Bible app and go there and find where we're at. Acts chapter 19. Acts 19 finds us in the third missionary journey of Paul. So Paul is on his third and final missionary journey, and uh, he's traveling, and he goes up through Galatia. Oh, you can, yeah, you can do that. He goes up through Galatia through Tarsus and Antioch, and he ends up in Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey, right there on the, on the coast. And uh, he arrives in this... It's a major city at the time. And uh, when he gets there, he comes across about 12 men who were believers um, in, in God in that area. Uh, they, they were believers in, in terms of they had had John's repentance of their sin, but they didn't know who Jesus was. And so Paul lays his hands on them, um, and he, he baptizes them in the name of Jesus, and then they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And this, this, uh, these 12 men and what happens there kind of initiates this powerful move of God. Thank you, Gavin. This powerful move of God that's going to happen in this region. So it's not just a momentary stop by in Ephesus. Remember, we read things in a few moments that actually can take years that, that go on here. So um, Paul is in Ephesus, and in Acts chapter 19, verse 8, if you have your Bibles, you can open them with me to Acts 19, verse 8. It says this, Then Paul went to the synagogue, and he preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message, and publicly speaking against the way. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him, and then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years. So that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So, miracles start happening. Uh, These 12 men are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Paul starts to preach. Um, They're kicked out of the... Uh, the the place that they're at where he was preaching in the synagogue they said you got to get out of here so he goes to kind of this public forum and for the next two years he's preaching the gospel and God starts doing these miraculous works through him people are being healed of diseases demons are being cast out like if he prays over a handkerchief and it goes out and someone touches it they're healed and so this momentum starts to move um, through what Paul has done and so it says continuing in verse 17 the story of what happened 
spread quickly through all of Ephesus to Jews and Jews and Greeks alike, and a solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Verse 18, many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. Now I want to just pause there for a second. It says many, it doesn't say all. I think this is an important thing to understand. Confessing Jesus, believing in Jesus, even that he's the son of God and asking him to be your Lord and Savior is a great thing. But let me tell you right here, they did not repent and turn from their sinful practices. Not all. Many did, but it does not say all. I think it's important we understand that our relationship with Christ, our, our journey of discipleship does not end with a prayer we say on a Sunday morning. That there's a, a journey of repentance and, and, and we are justified before God at the moment of salvation. But then there's a process of sanctification where we lay down things of, of our flesh and say, I've sacrificed these and lay them down. So it says, many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. Moving on to verse 19, a number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. They didn't just uh, secretly put it in their, uh, you know, their, their burn pit in their backyard or something. They publicly declared that they were following Jesus. The value of the books was several million dollars. And so the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. All right, context time. I love, I love context. All right, Ephesus. Ephesus was known primarily for one thing, and that was the patron deity of Ephesus. It was a goddess by the name of Diana. She was also known by her Greek name, Artemis. Okay? And Diana was believed in their, in their understanding to be the daughter of Zeus and, and, uh, and Hera. And she, she was the twin sister of Apollo. And she came down. She fell out of heaven and, uh, and was kind of this meteorite they found. And it was this uh, kind of globular, odd meteorite. And so they shaped her, this disfigured chunk of meteorite or iron, into this grotesque figure that you see here, into this idol that's behind me. And so this is actually, ironically, this is on display in Rome at the Vatican Museum of all places, this idol. And she's this multi-breasted idol that, that carries all these images. And, and it's, this, it's this goddess that was seen primarily as a fertility goddess, of course, as you can tell by the imagery here. And throughout Rome, you can go to the next slide so we don't have to keep looking at that. Um, <laughs> throughout Rome... There were 39 different shrines and temples dedicated to Artemis. There were 39 different shrines and temples, but the chief one, the headquarters, was in Ephesus. And this headquarters was not small. Diana's temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You've got the pyramids, you've got all these things. And Diana's temple was one of the seven wonders. The pillars in the temple were 60 feet tall. That is nearly three times the height of the ceiling in here. The pillars were 60 feet tall, and there were 127 of those pillars. And they were holding up an area that was 425 feet long by 225 feet wide. Further context, that is four times the footprint of the Parthenon that's on the Acropolis in Greece. You think about the Parthenon's considered like this great thing. Think about how massive this 
this place was. It was enormous. And at the center of it was uh, some sort of depiction of Diana. This one, the one you saw there, this idol, was not that specific one that was there, but they had this depiction of Diana, this Artemis, this person that they'd worship. And people would come from far and wide to worship here. But they would also come because there was a yearly festival, the festival that would be thrown, and it lasted for a whole month. And there would be this month of worshiping Diana here at this temple. And as you know, big events draw big crowds, and big crowds are big business, right? Remember when we had the, uh, the championships here, the track and field championships? They were assuming there was going to be a much larger contingency of people. But people were getting excited because there was going to be some business that came to town with this event. And so every year when, the, when the, uh, this, this festival would come, they knew money's coming into town. People are going to come here. They're going to party. They're going to worship. They're going to spend their money. And so um, I actually went to, there's a .gov website called the National Endowment of the Humanities. And I read an article about the worship of Artemis that happened in Ephesus. And it says here, and I'm quoting, that the rites that happened there had a reciprocal aspect and that there was much civic involvement in the annual celebrations, spawned in part by the commercial success of the whole production. There was a big commercial success from the whole production. There was this cyclical thing. Wow, we make money when we do this. And so there was this big financial kickback that came from the worshipers. And this study that I read also goes on to explain that by the reign of Caesar Augustus, remember Caesar Augustus was the Caesar who was in power when Jesus was born. A decree came from Caesar Augustus that all men should be go to their hometowns to be registered so they could be taxed, right? When Caesar Augustus came into power, the temple there in Ephesus had actually been stripped of it. It had political power connected to it for a while, but that had been taken away. But the, um, it goes on to say, the leaders of the polis realized that the temple was still a valuable tourist attraction. And so they knew that people still come to worship and have religious rites there. And so when Paul comes to town, the gospel starts being declared. People are coming to faith and salvation. They're taking their incantations. They're taking their books. They're taking their idols. They're taking all these things and they're publicly destroying them. Their witchcraft. All these things that were items of worship to Artemis and not selling it off. They're not encouraging anything. People are turning towards the way and destroying these things. And let me tell you, that's bad for business. That's really bad for business. And so it goes on in Acts 19.23. It says about that time... Serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. It it began with Demetrius, the silversmith, who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. And he kept many craftsmen busy. So he was kind of the boss, it sounds like, of this guild of people that made uh, made these things. Oh, and I forgot to bring it. I, I have my little my little trinket here. Um, first of all, I want to go back and say um, I love the reference to the believers being called the way. I think that's so cool. Um, We know that they were called Christians as well, but calling them the way, um, it it wasn't just like they're this group or they're that group. It's not like you got the Reformed and the Armenian um, or this way or that way, but it was the way. And this is a reference to John 14 where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so all of these people are known as followers of the way. And, and, uh, and so I, I, I forgot to bring it. It's killing me. It's upstairs in my backpack. Tourist tchotchkes, little items. When I went to Rome, I, have, uh, I, I am a sucker for these just as well as anyone else. There are uh, these items you can get in a shop where uh, there are little carvings and things of, of 
items of significance. And I have one of like Romulus and Remus there in Rome. And I think it's just so cool. And if you look on the bottom, it says made in Italy, but it's in quotes. And so I don't know what that means. Like wink, you know, I don't know. Made in Italy. But uh, these little tchotchkes that people buy. And, and so um, it's these items that were being sold were being used for personal worship. They were purchased when Artemis came through um, for you with a bountiful harvest. Say you came and brought an, a sacrifice to Artemis there in the, in the temple and you happened to get a bountiful harvest or maybe you gained some riches or maybe you attracted a lover. And so what you would do then, if you had children or whatever else, you had this reciprocal response to Artemis by going and buying a little shrine and you would take it home with you. And now that Paul is there and the gospel is being proclaimed and truth is being heard, business is drying up. And their business is not, that that's their livelihoods and so they're upset. And <laughs> let me tell you, the gospel and the testimony of Jesus will shake up the status quo. People liked things as they were. But the gospel has this tendency to shake up the status quo. The gospel has a tendency to shake up the status quo. Darkness will always try to stifle and silence that which comes to set the captives free. And darkness, the the enemy tried to squash what what the gospel was doing. It was trying to shut down what, what freedom was being proclaimed. And so the status quo wanted to hold on. It wanted to do everything in its power to keep things as it was. But the gospel will push through those boundaries. Acts 19.25. So Demetrius, this guy, he called them together along with others employed in similar trades. And he addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis This magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world will be robbed of her great prestige. First of all, what a compliment to Paul. Uh, uh, Skip Heitzig says this. He says, there's not a greater compliment than when your harshest critic admits the success of their adversary. There's not a better compliment than when your harshest critic's like, man, they're doing good. Stink. (laughs) And, uh, and so there's this great compliment of, man, the gospel's going forward and the truth is being proclaimed. And Artemis, he said, is going to be robbed of her prestige. He's fighting then to protect the status of his God. He's fighting to protect her, 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 her recognition and her power. But let me tell you that something. God's glory will never be diminished by who does or who do, does not worship him. God's power, His glory, and His dominion are not determined by the number of worshipers He has or how many followers He has on His Instagram account or how many people raise their hands during the third song of the worship set or, or by what celebrity follows Him. I am so sick of hearing people say, if only such and such celebrity would come to Christ, can you imagine what that would do? God's not wringing His hands going, I hope that such and such comes to know me. Not that He doesn't care about their soul, Let me tell you, he does, but it's not like, oh, their prestige would mean a lot to the movement. But that's exactly what was going on when, 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 uh, when, when this, this uh, Demetrius, he's seeing what's happening to the strength of his God because the strength of that God was held up and bolstered by people. 
The strength of his God was what people could do, people could say, people could could proclaim. But our God stands alone in his righteousness and holiness. He is not limited by uh, what we say, what we do, anything else. We are just compelled to, by his own power, to worship. By his own holiness to worship. And so Demetrius riles up this guild of tradespeople and he incites a riot. And in verse 28 it says, So at at this their anger boiled up and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him, begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. So this place is blowing up. And it's focused primarily at Paul, but they grab two of his companions and drag them in. Now, this amphitheater in Ephesus, again, it's massive. We're talking about size here, and it still is massive. This actually still exists, whereas the temple no longer does. The amphitheater still exists. It seats 25,000 people. That's twice the, the, the people you can fit inside of Matthew Knight Arena. It's six and a half times the size of the Holt Center. That is a big theater. And this theater um, gets packed full of people. And as Paul's traveling companions, they bring him in there and they drag him into the arena. And it says, inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing, some one thing, and some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. One of the greatest tools the enemy uses is confusion. The fog of war, they call it. You get picked up in the movement. You get picked up in all that's going on. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 talks about the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. So the enemy uses confusion. And there's this, and, and also let me tell you, there's fear of going against the crowd. There's fear of going against what other people might think, what popular majority says. But let me tell you, the crowd is rarely right. I, th- I can see these people just, just getting stirred up. They're like, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. And they're like, what are we mad at? I don't know. Yeah. You know, and, and says there, some people are yelling one thing, some are yelling another. They, some think they're actually, some, some um, scholars believe that they thought there was an actual like political thing going on that they were trying to engage in. So not everybody even knew what was going on. They don't know the issue. They don't understand the subject matter. And let me tell you, the enemy wants to blind people, pulling people along by a popular wave. And we don't want to be on the wrong side of societal issues, do we? We don't, want, we don't want history to frown on us. And so we're like, wow, I just want to be so out in front of this. And so people get pulled along with the d- distraction and all that's going on. It says the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. Alexander's not really explained or mentioned here. It's kind of, I guess, understood by Luke when he writes Acts that people knew who Alexander was. And he motioned for silence and tried to speak. But when the crowd realized he was a Jew... They started shouting again and kept it up for about two hours. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. So this riot and chanting are going on for two hours. And finally, it goes on to explain that the mayor of the city comes in and he quiets people down and he finally disperses the crowd. He's like, this is unruly. We're going to get in trouble. Let's do this in a, in a lawful way. And it doesn't seem like these guys have done anything illo- uh, you know, that's not lawful. And he disperses the, cl- the crowd. And after this event, despite the opposition of the enemy, the church flourishes. 
The church explodes, as a matter of fact. We have books of the Bible after Acts that are written based on what God is doing in, in Ephesus. We've got the book of Ephesians. We've got the books of First and Second Timothy, both to a young pastor who was a pastor in Ephesus. So the church is growing. It's Great things are happening. And this area, though, of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey was and is, however, a spiritual hot zone. So you've got... Then you've got Artemis, this god that was, that was revered and on these Greek gods, right? But then Artemis is long gone, by the way. There's not many worshippers of Artemis still there in modern-day Turkey. But now the prevailing, prevailing darkness is Islam. The church that was once thriving there in, in, in Ephesus has essentially vanished from the place. Right now in Turkey, the population of believers is about 0.2%. 0.2%. And so today, we are actually engaged in the replanting of churches. We're back to Acts chapter, chapter 19 right now. Replanting churches where they didn't exist before. Or where they, where they existed a long time ago, over 800 years ago. It's been about 800 years since the church really existed there. You see, simply because the gospel has flourished in a place at one particular time, it's not a guarantee that it will remain. And I think it's important we understand that. We like to talk about how we're a Christian nation, how we've been founded on Christian principles. Let me tell you, because of our history, because of our past, does not guarantee our future. Legacy is not relationship. History is not fervency. Something changes in Ephesus after these moments. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelations... John the Revelator has a vision of Christ and he's walking among these lampstands that represent the churches and he walks up to a lampstand that represents uh, the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Here's what it says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. What's the thing he holds against it? They have abandoned their first love. See, losing your love is, not, is rarely a blowout, like a tire blowout. It's more of a slow air leak. Have you ever had a car with a nail in the tire and it's just that slow air leak and every week or so you've got to put air in it? Losing your love is kind of that slow air leak. You see, Jesus tells the church, you're doing a really good job at staying busy. I see you toiling and working and you have lots of good endurance and you don't put up with evil and you're doing the work. Way to go. Even your theology, he says, is solid. You're testing things out and making sure it's true. But in the midst of all your busyness, in the midst of all your work, your heart has wandered. It's not anymore about your first love. It's about the work that's being done. And we need to learn to balance our work with our worship. See, there are thousands of things that can convince us to settle with diminished fervency. Perhaps your relationship with Jesus has been based on what you can produce for Him. 
You've been really busy about the things of God. You've been really busy knocking out the things, the, the checklists, the things that need to be done. But the passion and the fervor is gone, but you've just been doing the job. Maybe you've been spending so much time pouring into other people, carrying the weight of responsibility for their own souls, that your own soul has been neglected. It's kind of like being a, a parent and caring so much about your children that the relationship with your spouse gets ignored. You just pour into your children, pour into your children. Soccer practice, baseball practice, you know, school and all these extra things, extracurriculars. And then you go, oh, my spouse, but the the relationship has grown cold. Perhaps your own soul has been neglected. Perhaps you've begun to hold on to this world too tightly. Has something stunted your affection? Has something cooled your affection for Christ? Something caused you to create a cautionary distance between you and Jesus. You're afraid of what he'll call you to or afraid of what he'll say. Say, let's let's keep this a salvation issue, Jesus. Let's keep this, and I appreciate worshiping you, Jesus, but I don't want to get too close. I don't want this to be, uh, I, 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 I can't let the fervor be that strong because I don't know what you might call me to do. So this morning, are you busy? you've been distracted? Have you let projects and things fill the air and the space between you and Jesus? This morning, like Jesus called to Martha, I want to encourage you to come sit at his feet. Come sit at Jesus' feet. I invite you to come alive to return to your first love. When we're, when we're away from our first love, there's nothing that can substitute that. There's nothing that can... I just traveled with Gavin to the East Coast last week, and I missed Hosanna so much, and there was nothing that could substitute for that. I, could, I wasn't like, oh, there's the Washington Monument. That's basically as good. That's really great. I, you know, you can't, you can't say, you know what, I really miss my wife, but at least I've got these great reruns of Seinfeld to watch, or, you know, I really... Man, I, I really miss my first love, but, uh, but, but ah, I've got a great car. Those things don't fill the void. Those things don't fill the space. Desire compels us to desire the desirable one. It spurs us forward. We refuse to be comforted by anything less than that. Let's not be comforted or or placated by anything less than Jesus. Let that fire burn hot again. Say, Jesus, stir up the coals that have grown into just embers for you. Lord, I want to burn hot for you, Jesus. I want to I serve you with every portion of my being. Nothing will substitute. So this morning, I want to pray over us, church, that God would renew within us that passion and that heart for him. Maybe he's done something. We can remember the day that we gave our life to Christ and the, the emotion that filled our soul. But we go, where is that passion right now? You say, Lord, I need you to renew that within me. Renew that spirit within me that says, I want to pursue you with every portion of my being, Jesus. So we can, can we bow our heads and close our eyes this morning as we get ready to, to close in just a moment. Lord Jesus, I pray over this church. I pray. Lord, I pray that the one who speaks worlds into being now speak over hearts and souls and minds to come alive to once again come alive to not just live and rest on the laurels of what's happened before but God we would press on that we would not just settle but we would push forward 
that we would have hearts that respond once again to our first love. Hearts that once again say, Jesus, you are my everything. You are my source. That we couldn't wait to spend time with you, to get into our word, to pray, to pursue you. When the emotions are there and when the emotions aren't there, that the fire would still burn. Return us back to that true love that existed before. Lord, I pray for those that have been weary, those that have been doing the work, but they've lost the heart. I pray that you would just give them a new heart, Lord heart that's becoming stony and hard, that's becoming part of just the the rhythm would become once again a heart of passion for you. We thank you, Jesus, that you never grow weary in your pursuit of us. You've never changed that the same God who pursues us today is the same God who found us when we were lost that first day that we came to salvation, Lord, in the same way. We pray, Lord, that we would... uh, have that joy of our salvation restored to us. We thank you, Jesus, and we praise you in your name. Amen. This morning we're going to do something. We're going to do a spiritual survey. So if you would, we're going to do our connection cards. So I want everyone to fill out your connection cards with us, all right? So if you'll go to the nlcchurch.com slash connect or use the QR code. Or we've got the paper ones. And in a moment we're going to receive our tithes and offerings, and you can drop a paper one in the offering. But here's what I want you to do. First of all, if you're new with us, let us know that you're here. We want to connect with you. We're going to make a donation on your behalf to an organization called Feed One that gives food, clean water, and an education to children in need. But also, let us know what we can be praying with you about, what God's been doing in your life. Maybe there's been an answer to prayer. Let us know what's going on there. But here's the survey I would like to challenge you to answer and to be honest about. On a scale of 1 to 10... How was your fervency for Jesus today? See, hunger is an indicator of life. The more we desire God, the more we desire the Lord, the more truly alive we are. But uh, conversely, the lack thereof, the the times where hunger um, is not there, it shows the degree of deadness that there is inside. Where we say, I just don't feel it. And be honest with yourself. This is a time to be honest. And and let me tell you, we aren't going to share this number. We're not going to email it out. Be praying for such and such. Man, they were a three. We want, to, we want to encourage you and pray over you as a, as a leadership team, and that, that alone, it will not go out to anyone else. But let us know what, where you stand, and maybe this is a moment of honesty for yourself to really own and say, God, I have been dry. This has been a dry season for me, and I, I don't feel like I've been serving you out of fervency. It's been out of obligation. That's okay to write. Because when we can come to terms with the truth, then we can move forward. And address it and push on into the victory he has for us into the relationship that we're supposed to have so let's take a moment fill out those connection cards together This morning we're going to receive our tithes and offerings as we go. And we're going to end 
on an up note. We're going to end with worship to our King. Can I ask you, when we give, let's give with joyful hearts. Let's give um, with, out, out of that relationship we have, not out of the obligation, but also as we give, let's worship and stand and sing together. Let's glorify the one who loves us. Let's step into that relationship that we were just talking about. Not a relationship of obligation, but a relationship of pursuit, where we say, Jesus, you are my everything. Just as we talked about the bridegroom and the bride wanting to be united. This is the relationship we yearn for. And so let's exalt his name together. Let's stand together, church, as we give, as we respond in this new way, um, in this way of giving that we haven't done yet today. And let's exalt his name together.